Quiet, please. In exactly 15 seconds, we'll be on the air. This is the PowerShell Podcast. PowerShell Podcast. Ready, set, and begin. It's all about PowerShell and the PowerShell community. And now, here's your hosts, Jordan Hammond and Andrew Plough. Hey everybody, welcome back to the PowerShell Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan, Mr. Defaults Hammond. Uh, thank you to, I'm giving Chrissy Lemire all the credit, none to Andrew. And uh, my co-host, Andrew Pla. And today we're joined Hello. by a special guest. Uh, I'm sorry if I butchered, I should ask this beforehand, but Raymond Andre? No, that's fine. Uh, fine, but not correct, <laughs> is what I... It's... That's very fine. <laughs> All right, uh, you have been working at Microsoft for a while. You've been big into automated labs. You got a lot on your plate, it looks like. Yeah, so I joined Microsoft in 2002. Um, this year I had my 20th anniversary. And uh, yeah, I'm doing open source stuff since since quite some time, yeah. And the list of, of modules and stuff I have on, on GitHub is is growing. Looking through I was 20 years, I was, that's, yeah. that is impressive. That's quite a long time. Um, yeah, it's a have, great place to work, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like it. I yeah. mean, how have things changed, though? I, things, I imagine, have gotten bigger, like most businesses do, and I think Microsoft has grown. Like, as an employee there, how's that ride been? Um, I know they were big 20 years ago, obviously, but, you know, things have changed yeah. a lot in 20 years, so yeah, how's that been? So, so the, the impression is that everything has slowed down. Everything is more, we have a much bigger bureaucracy, uh, much more tools and processes involved and the compliance rules that we all know about, which are important. <laughs> yeah. And uh, everything is more disconnected. So sometimes it's very hard to feel part of the team anymore because, yeah, it, it changes so quickly and it's so huge that it's very hard to contact to all the people that you would like to yeah but obviously all the change was not so bad otherwise <laughs> i wouldn't have had my 20th anniversary yeah they don't have like a, a special address list of all the cool people where you could just like yeah i'd like to hit up all of the awesome people today mm, that's that list would be too big, <laughs> too big. <laughs> yeah yeah so we were talking to jan last week and um, for those of us who don't recall, we talked about Automated Lab with Jan, and um, one of the other primary maintainers is here with us today, Raymond. And Jan mentioned that uh, you obviously you predated him at Microsoft, and you kind of helped him get that job. Um, how has it been to see him from starting at Microsoft to now, so far uh, later along in his career? Like, how has it been kind of to see that, to have a friend of yours kind of join and see them grow and develop and do awesome stuff? Very nice. Yeah, very nice. So, so actually, he was working for for the company Aldi. I think he said it this in the previous interview. And uh, of course, I was not actively kind of dragging him into Microsoft, but he was also very keen and interested about the job and how it is to to go to different customers from different countries. And uh, yeah, so finally, he was asking the question how the how the change process could work. And uh, I mean, he was. He was very effective and a very fast learner from the very beginning. So it's it's very good to see a very highly talented person joining the team and uh, especially not joining just the Microsoft team, but also joining the open source teams and having a very, a, a very good helping hand. And 
You've mentioned open source. You mentioned earlier that you kind of do some work in open source. What projects come to mind when you think of your open source work? Of my open source, because of course, Automated Lab, DSC Workshop. Um, I'm trying to also participate in other open source projects. Um, so yeah, DSC. At the moment, mostly the DSC Workshop, because we are trying to put infrastructure as code into classical Windows infrastructures on-prem customers um, that also should participate with the new style of work infrastructure as code and configuration as code. Yeah, so this is the project that keeps me busy most of the time at Nodex. Could you dive into that DSC workshop module a little bit more? What is that? What is the DSC workshop? So it's first of all, it's a blueprint. It's not a product that you can just install and use. It's more a guideline of how things should be working if you want to use DSC or infrastructure as code in your organization. Um, the, the main problem with DSC was that the way how Microsoft documented it was okay. The documentation wasn't wrong or isn't wrong, but it is just focusing on DSC as a very deep technology. And also the DSC workshop. I think Jan mentioned that um, we have refurbished or rewritten the DSC workshop that we are going to deliver to customers. And also the DSC workshop, so the, the presentation that we gave to customers was explaining DSC as one piece of technology. But what it didn't explain was, how is this piece of technology actually helping me? How does it fit into my processes? How do I, what are the best practices, right? What's the do's and don'ts? How do I manage configuration data? How do I do the reporting? So we ended up experiencing that the customers visiting the workshop knew how to use DSC, but they miserably failed implementing it in their own environments. Um, mostly even the, the, the POCs failed, so they didn't even implement it in the real world. Yeah. And if they did, then things went even worse <laughs> because it didn't help them in the way it should. Sometimes it even was even harder to administer in, or to manage an infrastructure with a with a yeah with a bad DSC project than like the classical way, yeah. So the DSC project is, I would say, it's the way to go if you want to use DSC in a in a Windows environment, and it is heavily heavily um, yeah heavily oriented on Puppet on how things work in Puppet. So the whole data modeling system was. Um, yeah, was kind of reinvented for Windows. This is not my work. This is uh, the work by Gail Colas. He's also the, um, um, the, 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 yeah, the, the not the inventor, but he he has uh, managed the DPS conference this year in Vienna, and uh, he's kind of my mentor if it comes to infrastructure as code and the whole DSC world. Now you mentioned Puppet and how that is being used in this DSC workshop as your kind of example blueprint. What is What does Puppet do um, for those who aren't familiar? So actually, I, I didn't say that the DSC workshop is using Puppet. He's just, the DSC workshop is using ideas, how Puppet manages configuration oh, data okay. and use, transports these ideas to the, to the DSC world. I mean, have you guys used DSC for something? I used it at my last job, but I haven't been there for uh, quite a while now, so I'm not as familiar. <laughs> Okay, yeah. So in, in, in DSC, you manage configuration data in hash tables. These hash tables are stored usually in PSD1 files. But this works if you have a very flat and easy infrastructure. But if you have many roles, if you have a couple of hundred or even thousand machines, if you have exceptions in your 
in your configuration data, then the way how DSC works is simply not scaling anymore. And then you need something different. And uh, the DSC workshop uses the Gale, Gale Coalesce's module called Datum. And this Datum module is reinventing what Puppet, what, what, what's called in the Puppet world as Puppeteera, and uh, gives you an, a hierarchy model of data, and the data is stored in YAML files, right? Yeah, I can really encourage people, if they are interested in DSC, go to the DSC workshop. Um, and we have also exercises there, and these exercises should give you a very good introduction and a little yeah, path through the complexity. Awesome. So if I'm hearing correctly, it sounds like the kind of current documentation or at the point in time when this was created around DSC was specific to the technology, not yeah. about how to implement it. So yes. this project kind of fills that gap and shows you if you're actually trying to implement DSC, which it sounds like some people are interested in and having issues with, uh, at least the ones you've ran into, they should check this out and kind of work through some of the examples there to kind of get you started and then also kind of use it to paint the picture of how you should be implementing DSC in practice. So we we, can, we we jumped into DSC and kind of the, the high end, but I don't think we even covered like DSC is desired state configuration. Uh, so it's just kind of a baseline of what you want, whether your lab or your entire environment, it sounds like. It's just kind of a baseline of everything building blocks to build on, or am I missing the the target completely here? Yeah, it's, it's exactly. So your infrastructure is no longer defined by certain tasks and documents and instructions that are written on paper or on some Word documents. Your configuration is, or your, your, yeah, your whole setup is stored in a database, and DSC is just the engine that takes the data from the database and actually does things, exactly the required things to get your infrastructure into life. All right. So, yeah, infrastructure as code, like uh, we are defining everything in a database. And the, the, the big advantage is that if you also follow the DSU workshop blueprint, you have full transparency about your changes, right? I mean, um, I don't know of a single company who has a version number tagged to a server. So if you ask, in case of a problem, what's the version of the server? Who knows what software is installed? Who knows about what the configuration looks like? Then they may come up with some documentation. They may come up with a documentation which is describing how their base images look like. But uh, yeah, what about the... The, the lifetime, right? The base image was installed. The base image was maybe modified after or before the actual deployment, and maybe the documentation doesn't contain this kind of modifications. Um, over a lifetime of a couple of years, the server has changed def definitely. And this is why we also, also talk about snowflakes, because every machine usually looks a bit different if it's managed manually. And um, if we do this with DSC, then we have full transparency because the configuration is in a database. The database is just YAML files, and YAML files can be stored on Git. Right? So we know exactly when, the, when a YAML file has been created. We know exactly what, and what has changed in a YAML file and who changed it. And if the commit messages are also um, yeah, done in a very good way, then we can also extract from the commit messages, the, the reason why a certain change has happened. Um, and another good thing is everybody can look into a Git database. So it also um, enables collaboration and transparency between teams. And this is all something that, unfortunately, most even big customers don't have. This feels like another uh, in a long line of things where 
it's a, a whole bunch of work up front, but the more work you put into it early, the better the payoff uh, oh, yeah. down the line. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that you're like really repositioning your company IT wise, like you're kind of taking them into a new frontier of sorts. So there's definitely going to be some overhead um, implementing that, I would imagine. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you mentioned that traditionally you have like a set of things that you do to each server and yeah, they're different, but it's kind of a, the old way is to focus on these steps. Whereas DSC allows you to focus on what the configuration should be. And then DSC kind of takes care of running the commands to set that up, whether that exactly. be enabling a certain feature on a server or things like that, uh, things that would traditionally be done through some other mechanism, you're now able to, to leverage like version control and you're able to see the configuration over time. And if there's issues, you can potentially revert. Um, it's pretty cool. Yeah. And I think one of the coolest facts is a non-technical one because all the customers that we are dealing with, regardless from which vertical they are coming from, let it be finance, um, wholesale, defense, government, they all have pretty much the same requirements, right? They want to get something automated. And they have all paid um, a fleet of consultants and programmers like me to create a solution that fits their environment, their approach, their requirements. And uh, DSC takes this kind of burden from them because the DSC resources are actually the abstraction layer between DSC and the technology. So the, the DSC resource knows exactly what to do with the configuration data and how to actually convert the configuration data into a real change. And um, these DSC resources have been created, some by Microsoft, most by the community. And so if someone wants to leverage DSC for whatever automation purpose, um, the logic is already there. So you don't have to reprogram everything or need to sit down and think how things can be done. For example, a cluster installation. A cluster installation is a very delicate task, uh, very complicated, and requires quite some, some knowledge about how a cluster actually works. And with DLC, you don't even need the knowledge because you have an abstraction layer that is pretty convenient. You have like a PowerShell function, a bunch of parameters and a little explanation. And even I, who never worked with clusters, was able to install a four-node SQL cluster with DSC in about a day. Yeah. So, so the 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 actually at the end, all the customers are putting their requirements into one big repository in GitHub, working together like they have never done before. Even if they maybe don't even know that they are working together through the consultants, which are putting the code back into the repository, they actually do. Wow. Um, I think in that example. You were kind of mentioning how large customers um, were interested in this kind of thing. What about the opposite end of the spectrum? A small shop, maybe one location, a couple dozen, and maybe a 50 employees or something like that. Um, would you recommend that they try and leverage DSC? No, I would try uh, explaining them that the cloud is the best idea for them. <laughs> not, using, not using an infrastructure that consists of machines, but rather using services. I mean, cloud is all about... Um, something as a service, right? So why would a small company install an exchange server or a SQL cluster if you can just run a SQL database on the cloud that is automatically or automatically scalable, that is uh, even, even yeah, has, has an implemented disaster recovery? So I think for small customers, this is not the right approach. Rather, from, from, for customers that have a huge infrastructure, either on-prem or in the cloud, and want to get the stuff managed, 
um, using yeah using infrastructure as code technologies. This also seems like a great way to uh, rein in developers because, in my experience, oh, yeah. Uh, no, it's nothing malicious. It's just everything they're working on is their baby and they need maximum amount of resources at all times, no matter what. And uh, I've lost that battle many a times. But if I had just a desired state, it's like, well, this is what you get. We can look at the next version up. If this if this caps out, that would have uh, that would have that would help me in some of those arguments. And I wouldn't have just these massive servers performing a single task out there anymore. That could help, definitely. And actually, we are, because we also asked about automated lab, I'm kind of sorry that we haven't started. No, I'm, I'm sorry that we haven't used DSC for doing the actual deployment with automated lab. So automated lab is, is following the pretty much the pretty old approach. It's, it's all imperative. So we are telling the operating system what to do line by line. And DSC is more declarative, so you are just setting up a configuration, and then you make things going according to the configuration. But Automated Labs started in 2013, actually 2012, um, on an internal conference, and then in 2013. And in that time, DSC was far from being ready and as mature as it is now. So yeah, it's kind of um, two hands, right? On, on one hand, I would like to implement the technology, but now it's too late. Changing the whole infrastructure of Automated Lab would be a huge, a huge project. And um, on the other hand, I, yeah, I, I miss it because DSC would make many things so much easier. Yeah, but um, sometimes the lifetime of products are not really synchronized. So, what are the connections between Automated Lab and DSC? Does Automated Lab just kind of give you uh, the ability to deploy a DSC environment? Mm, yes. So if you want to use or start with a DSC workshop and want to get an idea about how things work and if this is something that you could use in your in your organization, then we I would recommend using Automated Lab to deploy the initial lab infrastructure, which consists of the typical things like a domain controller, like a um, certificate authority a router to be able to connect all these machines to the internet. Then we have um, a, DS, uh, a DSC pull server. We have an Azure DevOps server. So, and of course, a couple of nodes. Nodes, that's the term for a machine that you connect to a DSC pull server infrastructure. So Automated Lab with the predefined scripts is capable of deploying a very complex infrastructure, which I would say takes you days to create in, in, in no, no longer than three or four hours, depending on the machine, right? And um, we also provide some customization scripts that actually configure the whole infrastructure so that you can immediately get going and um, yeah, test the configuration of the, the DSC configuration and see how the DSC configuration actually is converted into artifacts using an Azure release pipeline, and then the effect of the artifacts on the machines, which means you have an end-to-end -end solution. You do a change in a database, you commit the change to the, to the Git repository, which is also something that is um, inside this lab environment, and then you can lean back and just wait. And then you will see that exactly what you have configured in the database is actually applied to the machines, right? So it's an end-to-end -end release pipeline. Um, that I always missed seeing because for me, the term release pipeline was 
back then, four years back then, always a bit mystical. So what is it actually doing? How does a release pipeline work with an infrastructure, right? And um, I wanted to understand this by myself and also be able to explain it to others. And the best approach to learn and also be able to explain is create a, yeah, a living infrastructure, create something that actually demos everything, POC, that you can also show in conferences and at customer meetings. Awesome. And I was looking at the DSC workshop project, and from what I saw, it looks like it leverages automated lab um, to set up a DSC environment to do some of the yeah. activities. That's it. Yeah. So awesome. Automated lab is um, is capable of setting up a lab environment. It, also, it can also, yeah, but it's very, it's just a very small part. So you can use DS, a DSC configuration that you can, that automated lab can then push to the lab machines. Um, but that's the only thing that we are supporting in terms of DSC. All the rest, all the, the heavy lifting is done in a very classical approach. You mentioned a release pipeline and how that's used for infrastructure. Um, do you find that when you're dealing with customers, they're familiar with that concept? And could you introduce, like, what does a release pipeline look like for um, this and, and infrastructure as code? I mean, we're mentioning there's a database at the end where that's where DSC kind of does things. So I imagine at the end, after everything's approved, it will update the database. But yeah, could you kind of explain your experiences with customer and also generally what the release pipeline looks like? Sure. Um, first, I would like to point to the talk I have given on the DevOps Summit um, in Bellevue this year. Um, it was about the DSC workshop and also the, about the concept of um, a release pipeline, a DSC release pipeline, and it's available on, on YouTube. So. If somebody is interested in more depth, then this could be the next research you might want to look at. But what is a release pipeline doing? So a release pipeline is actually um, my requirement how something should be compiled into a final product. And my requirements defined as code. So the release pipeline is just a piece of code that takes my data and transforms it so that at the end we have something that the next system understands. For example, if you have um, a PowerShell module that consists of a bunch of files, and the final module should be just one PSM1 file and a PSD1 file, and the version number and the PSD files automatically managed, the public and private functions are automatically set in the PSD1 file, then this is stuff that you can put into your release pipeline. So you know how things should look like at the end. So you provide the code that takes your various files, converts them into one big PSM1 file, changes the version number, and then releases the product. And release means it just pushes the product to a NuGet repository. So that's a PowerShell release pipeline, right? Um, in terms of DSC, it's a bit more complex. So if you want to have a DSC pull server um, infrastructure, then you need artifacts like the MOF files, the MetaMOF files. We need the compressed modules. Um, we may need some kind of logs or some kind of compressed config, or not compressed, but configuration data that is human readable. And doing all these or creating all these artifacts manually is kind of an error-prone task. It's a, it takes time. So you think about how can I automate everything? How can I kind of create a workflow that is creating these things and is copying these things to the right location so that the nodes can just pick them up? 
So what our PowerShell release pipeline is doing, or not the PowerShell release, but the DSC release pipeline is doing it, it takes the data from the database, it converts the data into hash tables, because this is what DSC actually requires. It requires one big hash table. Um, and then it compiles the MOF files and the MetaMOF files based on the data that we have in, in, as a hash table. Um, if this has succeeded, then we are also taking the modules, we are compressing the modules, we are adding the checksum file, and then we are just releasing them to the locations where DSC requires them. So we are copying the MOF files to the pull server, we are copying the compressed modules to the pull server, and we are making the MetaMOF files available as files so that you can push them to the nodes to tell them where is your pull server. What's your pull server? What's your configuration there? Right. So the release pipeline actually creates all the artifacts that are required for a working DSC solution and puts them at the right location. That's it. It's actually pretty straightforward. It's just a, a sequence of PowerShell scripts. And now, just more generically, is there a difference between a CI/CD pipeline and, and a release pipeline, or are they generally the same thing? It's the same. So CI means continuous integration. If you push something to a Git repository, you want to know, do things still build? Are the tests still OK? Right? Are the PESTA tests still green? So this is continuous integration. Every, every change that we commit to our Git repository should be validated. And um, CD means either continuous delivery or continuous deployment. In the terms of DSC, it's kind of in the middle of between um, continuous deployment and continuous delivery. Uh, but this means that whatever the continuous integration process created, whatever the artifacts are that I have, they need to be released somewhere, right? So what is a PowerShell module useful for if it's not on the PowerShell gallery, right? So the continuous delivery process takes the artifact and pushes it to the PowerShell gallery automatically so that the end user or myself can actually use it. So a release pipeline and a CI/CD pipeline is the same. And for people who haven't kind of made use of these, um, it's really cool because it allows you to start solving problems like once and building yes. something and you create <laughs> your testing and your testing is there. You don't have yeah. to ask Fred, hey, Fred, did you uh, check that on your computer? Did yeah. you run all the manual tests? No. You yeah. can trust in your tests. And if there's issues, you can improve that. And that's it's a far better idea to rely on something external like that instead of like, hey, individual, make no mistakes and do this perfectly. Yes. It, not as reliable. And Andrew, let me add another aspect, which is you try, no, you, you are forced to get rid of dependencies or you have to make have to define the dependencies within your project because the, the build process actually happens on a build worker, right? On some machine. And this, this machine gets spinned up when a build job comes in and gets destroyed afterwards. So it's always a plain machine. Um, and I struggled so often um, a couple of years ago when I was creating software on my notebook computer, which has installed a bunch of tools and a bunch of fancy stuff. Then you go to the customer and nothing works anymore. Right? Because you think that that every computer looks like your notebook computer and it's configured the same way. It's not, of course, right? So um, dependencies, dependency management, dependency resolution is something that is an integral part of a release pipeline. Yeah. And I think that's one of the kind of issues that a lot of companies experience is so many dependencies, it can be daunting to kind of maintain and manage that. 
and ensure that things right. are up to date and secure. It just becomes this whole bomb of dependencies and projects that are involved and stuff. And also another cool thing about the CI/CD pipeline is you can, uh, you know, output your test in a certain format and you can look at the test results real, real easily. Oh, you can yeah. see is, yeah, that's a huge benefit. Cause then it's just, you just give it the eye test. Green means good. Red doesn't. Yep. You have names. It's such a yeah. better way. And Jordan alluded to it earlier, but there is some overhead in implementing this stuff for the first time. You're going to have to do some research. You might make some mistakes, so on and so forth. But you'll be positioned in such a better place, and you'll find you're going to have a lot more time and to, to kind of pursue this higher level uh, way of doing things. Um, it's yeah. definitely worth the effort. And I think that a lot of times power, people's PowerShell journey kind of coincides with implementing a lot of these technologies and um, kind of taking things to the next level. Yeah. So all the people that have went this way, have done this or started this journey, kind of have been pushed to a new level. So because if you start with, with CISD, with Git, then you are no longer just an administrator or um, um, yeah, an ops engineer. You have to get familiar with dev topics. Unfortunately, many of our customers are still thinking that they can do DevOps without dev. They, they don't want to put their people um, yeah, to, next to a developer, and they still think that ops and dev should be different things, but actually it's not. right. If you want to manage an infrastructure in a very automated and modern fashion, you need to have developers. And many ops engineers can be good developers. Just give them the chance to learn, and getting into these topics is the best chance to, to get a boost. And I think it kind of changes the way you think and approach problems in general and kind of makes you a better problem solver in a bigger way because you're really solving problems at the root and a, yeah. that are going to affect and scale. And yeah. Yeah, always. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's, it's telling at like, uh, well, I don't know about PowerShell EU conference, but the one in, in Bellevue, like one of the keynotes to open up was April Edwards and she hit hard about how important it is to have that. And I think it's, I'd be surprised if it wasn't a heavy theme as well at uh, at the EU version. It just seems like all of the high-level people are talking about this as the next thing that people should be diving into. Yeah, definitely. <clears throat> That's correct. What are the different modes that DSC can use? I know you, I think you mentioned a poll server earlier. Um, when should people choose between push or pull? And like, what's kind of going on there with that? I would always go for pull, even if it is a slightly bigger overhead, because if you use pull, you have a reporting. So the, the pull server is not only providing the configuration files, but it's also waiting for the node to send the configuration data or the, the configuration report back. And then the pull server takes the data and forwards it to a SQL server. So if you have all the reporting data on a SQL server, then it's quite easy to have a yeah, SQL server reporting services, Power BI, you take what you want to visualize the state of your environment, right? In the DSC workshop, we have uh, predefined reports um, that are running on SQL Server reporting services. And uh, you immediately get an idea about how many configuration items do I have per node, which nodes are in a good shape, which are in a bad shape. And uh, yeah, and of course, you could also kind of attach an email system. So send out notification in case something's wrong. So this is not possible in push mode. In push mode, you hope you have to get the reporting data by yourself from each node individually using PowerShell remoting or whatever tool you want to use. And um, the pull server or the pull mechanism, the pull model is implementing this reporting system out of the box. 
Yeah, awesome. so I would say as, as soon as you have 50 plus nodes, I would definitely go um, to a pull mode if you have less than still pull mode makes sense, but uh, push mode would, would still scale. Like with growth, you're going to end up at pull anyway. That's just the one you want to start with because why wanna? Why would you want to change it up in the middle of it? Mm, yeah, so we have one customer who is uh, deploying kind of a mission infrastructure. Um, and uh, for each mission they have, they just need 15 machines. So they just, just use push to get the machines in a certain configuration. They are short living anyway. And then, yeah, you can argue if it makes sense. But right, if you, are, if you have an infrastructure that is, is a good candidate for growth, then I would go for pull um, just at the beginning to not have to switch later. That's right. What is configuration drift? I was reading a bit about DSC <laughs> and they mentioned that. So I figured. Yeah. I was also already referring to the term snowflake. So configuration drift means that if we are managing an infrastructure manually through tickets and through RDP and through yeah whatever classical um, way we choose, then there is actually no control about if we do the change exactly the way we should. So a change usually is, is triggered by a ticket, right? There is a problem. We have a ticket. Um, we are doing some research, so we are documenting in the ticket what would be the right approach to solve the problem. Um, then we have our change board. Um, we are we are proposing the change, and um, if the if the change gets approved, then either before or afterwards we are doing a test in a test environment. Okay, so many customers don't have a proper test environment. That's 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 a problem, and um, even if they do, and they do the test, and they validate the change successfully, then there is no guarantee that maybe you have a bad day when you do want to do the actual change. Maybe you have a headache or the last night was a bit rough and you do the change slightly different than you should have done it. And um, this is where things start. So you think you have done the change correctly. Maybe it even solved the problem, um, but you have done slightly more or slightly less than you should have done. So my machine is no longer in the state that I think it is. That's configuration drift. And we know that many machines are living a couple of years, some even 10, 15 years. And uh, I would wonder if anyone can tell you what, sh what should be the state of the machine and what is the actual state of the machine. So we don't even have a plan how it should look like. So how can we tell somebody how it's actually looking like, right? Yeah. So that's configuration drift. And the configuration, the only recipe against configuration drift is, is completely get rid of manual management. So even if you have infrastructure as code, you still have a configuration drift if you, as a side work, do things using RDP or PowerShell remoting. So if you want to want to get or kill configuration drift completely, then you have to do everything, every change through the configuration database. That sounds like what we suggest, like kind of with security. Um, a lot of environments probably have no insight into things they maybe don't have things configured properly and if that's not really a, a very advanced state to be not having any insight into your machines and it sounds like um if you're not kind of implementing dsc properly or making use of it um you're going to have computers that you have no insight into the configuration of like you said 10 years there, there could have been machines imaged a long time ago with people who never work here whose tickets for the thing yeah. are no longer valid um yeah. so it sounds like if you implement this you're you're taking a huge step up into being able to understand 
kind of what you're responsible for in your job and have much better tools to facilitate that. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Unfortunately, we are pretty late, aren't we? I mean, now everything switches to cloud. So we, are don't, we don't even want to manage machines anymore. We want to manage services. So if we had DSC, let's say in 2005, it would be, it would be awesome. It would be the thing, right? But it has taken quite some time um, for 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 yeah for humankind to invent this kind of mechanism because DSC is no rocket science. It's actually the next step of how a script should work, um, and um, yeah, and then it took a very long time for making making the IT people to actually accept the new idea. Then they misunderstood it, stood it, and I would say since since Scale stepped, Scale Cola stepped on and actually told people how DSC should work. There is this very interesting paper, um, the release pipeline model paper, um, written by Michael Green and Steve Murawski. And this was the first paper that kind of opened my eyes and showed me how a infrastructure should be actually managed using modern dev technology. So let's say I have a DNC, DSCL implemented, and I have a machine that started off with it within the template, but ended up needing a lot more than I expect. Widget Extreme just takes a lot of different uh, different resources. So with DSC, can I modify what that server has and keep it within the drift, or is it something where I have to, if I have to keep on uh, supplying resources to that server, uh, I'm going to just have drift into something I have to be aware of? Can you rephrase, please? All right, yeah, so it's just a lot of times when the server starts off, you don't know exactly what it's going to read need for resources. Mm-hmm. So if there's one that goes way outside the scope of resources you're expecting, so it's it's going to cause some drift if you make the change there. Is there a mechanism in DFC to like have an exception of like this server needs a, a different version where it has just a yes amped up so D- processes? DSC does not, but I think. Um, so it's the configuration data. So you mean we, we have a bunch of machines that should all look like the same, but there are some exceptions to machines that are maybe in a certain location. Do you mean that? Yes. Yes. So DSC does. So DSC is a framework. It's a very basic technology. Whatever you put on top needs to deal with this kind of situation and with this kind of exceptions. Um, so. As I said, the documentation that Microsoft provides is more focusing on how does DSC work internally. It's more rudimentary. Um, but Datum and the DSC workshop exactly make this possible. right? So we have a hierarchy of configuration data, which starts as at the security baseline. right? This, this should be the same everywhere. We want to enforce our security rules. On top, we have a baseline. Maybe then, not maybe, very, very likely we have a role. So file server, web server, whatever. And um, then you may have another layer, which is the location. So depending on the location layer, um, we might give the machine a different IP subnet. We might remove some software or install some software. And then at the very top, you have the node layer, which gives you the the possibility to configure each machine individually, which is not a good idea, right? We want to treat machines rather like cattle and not like pets. But if for some business reason there is the absolute requirement to make one particular machine look different, yeah, we can. So the node's not ideal, but if it absolutely becomes necessary, at least it's there for you. Yeah, (laughs) at least it's there, yeah. Now, you mentioned a phrase that I've heard several times before, and I bet for some of our audience they haven't heard it before, but you mentioned treating them like uh, cattle rather than pets. Yeah. So what does that kind of mean? And and 
how does that mindset kind of work? So, especially in in large organization banks and insurance companies, um, they they have spent so much money because they had all slightly different business processes that required slightly different configurations, right? So if even sometimes departments within these organizations had slightly different requirements. Um, if the IT governance could have kind of dictated a more standardized approach, then things would be much more cost efficient, right? So, and if we talk about standardization, that means that all the machines could pretty much look like the same. Um, so you don't need a, a mail server for each department because of slightly different requirements. You can have just one mail server, so one size fits all. And I know it doesn't work always, but we should at least try. And if one size fits all, um, then we have rather cattle than pets. Because let's say we have 200 mail servers, all look the same. We can we can troubleshoot in the same way because we know what the what the, what the machine has looked like. Um, we can extend or upgrade the machine the same the machines the same way because we know if we have tested a certain procedure on one machine, it works on all the machines, right? And um, so standardization means cattle, individuality means pets. And the snowflakes, so the configuration drift, makes each machine behave like a pet because we have no idea how it has changed over time, right? And this this hurts. And this is why we want to have a standardized configuration. And this is the term, or the catalyst, the term to describe that. It goes that far that you can you can even just remove a server. So you don't need to troubleshoot. If something behaves odd, then you just Remove the server, you deploy a new one, and you can be sure it's just doing its work because it's so highly standardized um, that yeah, deploying a machine using modern technologies is easy and the machine fully integrates into the environment. Now, let's say you're in an environment that has a lot of pets and you've been taking <laughs> care of these pets for a lot of years. How do you begin to implement DSC if you have a large kind of custom environment like that? How do you do that? It's a lot of work. So um, the the large projects that the large brownfield projects are still ongoing. So most of them we have started in 17, 18, some in 19, and we are still working with these customers to onboard new configurations, to do some troubleshooting, um, and just 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 for them to get an idea about the whole environment is, is nearly impossible. So they start with the most important services or with the best candidates that are that they think are very easy to onboard to DSC. But I would never tell someone that this is a quick win and with DSC you can kind of convert your whole infrastructure in a in a year or something. It usually takes way longer. I think that part of what you're dealing with is technical debt. Like you know you can't just yeah. let all the debt go away. It has to kind of be yeah. dealt with. Yeah. It has. And technical debt, then you have a documentation debt. So it, it happens so often that you go into a POC and then you're asking, so what is the software that you're using? They have no idea. So what are the what are the roles that could be on a specific server? No idea, right? So the, there is no kind of, of, of service map or the service map is very high level um, and not deep enough to take it as a basis for such kind of a, of a project. So yeah, it's it's technical debt, documentation debt. It's yeah, a lot of debts that you have to deal with. 
I'm curious to hear more about the documentation debt. Do you, I guess as a, I don't know if you get insight into the internal documentation at customers, but do you find that the customers that have more mature internal documentation are often like just better environments um, technically? No. Yeah, I. it should be, right? But so if I look back in, I would say in 2007 to 2010, there was a big initiative, maybe also because of some um, some compliance rules, that IT departments have to have an operational guide for almost anything. So they had really huge documents that had a click instruction for every task that is ongoing in operations. Uh, I don't see this anymore. And even the customers that still no, I think we don't have it anymore, right? So this massive creation of documentation was kind of in vain because yeah, because nobody nobody had the idea how to read the documentation, where to find it, how to connect the pieces. So a, an IT system has to be transparent and a little bit self-documenting. I, I know that's a bad word, especially if it comes to, to software, de uh, software development. Um, but I think infrastructure as code, DSC, Puppet, Chef, all these technologies help you a lot because... Um, the the way how your configuration is converted into 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 facts is documented in the release pipeline in code, and your configuration is also in code because YAML is at the end or, or PSD one or JSON is also some kind of code, right? So I think this is the right approach because we we want to have as much transparency and as much documentation without investing much time. So we need to find an approach that is kind of taking the burden from us and writing hundreds of pages in Word documents was obviously not the right approach. No, I, I guess whenever I'm into advanced, I, I also kind of assumed that everyone would kind of be participating in documentation and kind of regularly keeping it up to date. Um, but you mentioned some other tools. Do you find that DSC pairs well with other tools like Puppet or Chef or things like that? Uh, it's the basis for Chef and Puppet. So I'm not an expert in Chef and Puppet. I would love to be, but <laughs> time is limited. But from, from what I've understood, Chef and Puppet is using DSC to, to make the actual change on the Windows box, um, but they are not using the DSC engine, the local configuration manager. So it's just calling into the DSC resource to do the change or to get an idea about if the change is necessary to do, or if the machine is already in the desired state. So Chef and Puppet are using DSC as the as the actual yeah, kind of engine that is that is uh, doing the change, but they're not using the full DSC environment or full DSC spectrum. And I guess that part of what they offer is the tooling around seeing how things are, implementing changes, that kind of thing. Um, I haven't used either tool but I, I hear it mentioned <laughs> frequently, so. I know a chef, they call their things recipes. That's a, as far as I know. Yeah, the hey. terminology is a bit, uh, yeah, it's a bit. I contributed. Sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I think, I think that DSC, uh, that, that Puppet and Chef are more mature tools and more mature ways to approach configuration um, as code as the DSC workshop is. So the DSC workshop tried to learn from, from other concepts, implement the stuff, that is absolutely necessary, and sometimes even a bit more, and also, um, yeah, learn from the other products. So I guess awesome. Chef and Puppet have a lot of tooling that makes the use of, of DSC much more comfortable. But 
it's also quite a steep learning because these tools are running on Linux. If so if you're not very much into Linux, then yeah, some new challenges come around. And I, I think that really whatever you implement, you kind of have to your work has to play a role in deciding whatever tool you use. You know, I don't think most people can just go rogue and just implement something uh, org wide <laughs> that costs money. Yeah, correct. So I awesome. do want to be the IT guy with the no questions asked blank check. I want I want that job. <laughs> Same. <laughs> I want. Yeah, I. It's so lame. I always think like, man, if I could just. If I had the ability to have some budget, I'd be giving people gift cards randomly. And for some reason in my mind, it's like buying people gift cards are like, you know, if I work really hard this week, a $10 Starbucks gift card would be great. I don't know why in my head that's like the coolest thing ever is getting like a small <laughs> gift card. <laughs> All right. By the way, you, um, you, you talked about uh, documentation. If documentation is a good thing. Um, when we started with Automated Lab, then it turns out pretty quickly the documentation is a really, really hard thing because you get issues reported, you fix things, you forget to update the documentation. At some point in time, your documentation is so far away from the actual code base that then you have to rewrite it in, in parts, right? And I think, as Jan also said in his interview, um, writing the book about PowerShell version um, six or something, right? So yeah. it's completely outdated now, right? It's it's a version that nobody uses anymore, and um, this is why I think writing books is even even harder. Yeah, because the time you are finishing writing the book, the world is a different one. I'd like a, a book that's on GitHub and accepts PRs and <laughs> is popular and active. That's that's a book I could keep up with. Yeah, yeah. But how do you know? Where, where, where you're going to go back and read, like if you've read that book eight times and is he going to go and read the change log at that point? <laughs> <laughs> at least it helps new yeah. people who yeah. start it from scratch. Yeah. So information management in these times is definitely a challenge and it won't get easier in the future, I guess, unless we are finding new technologies that are yeah, way more advanced than we have, but what we have now. And I think that if you look at the size of the docs team at Microsoft, it speaks yeah. to how much of a serious yeah. challenge it is. Like it's yeah. a, there's so, there's thousands, I don't know the exact number, but like thousands and thousands of people working in docs. Yeah. There was a very interesting session on the DevOps Summit from Shaw and um, Mike Robbins. And Mike Robbins. Oh, yeah, yeah. And this was eye opening. So, yeah, it's, it's the, it's, these guys are actually programmers because they have invented a, a tool and a, a repository structure in the back that I did never expect to exist in such a complexity. Yeah. Yeah. We mentioned release and CI CD earlier. Yeah. I yeah. cannot imagine the complexities involved with that. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I really like documentation though. And I think that the more podcasts we do, and we've talked with a lot of people from the docs team, um, the more we realize how important it is and how it really is like your starting point for a lot of things. Um, yeah. And it is technical work. Like it's great, valuable work. I think my mind, at least I used to think, oh, documentation. No, I, I'm just going to write some good code. Um, if you want anyone to use that code, you better have the documentation. If you yeah. want, you know, like the documentation is so important. If you have great documentation, more people will use it. They'll have less problems. You'll have to do less work answering questions. Um, yeah, I, I love documentation. <laughs> well, also, uh, I think Sean was the first one to reach out to us about the podcast. It was to let us know that we had a bad link for documentation, but I just remember being so excited that, that Microsoft commented on on the work we're doing. He's like, sure, it was wrong, but they noticed. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, now, there have recently been some changes with DSC. I, I see some DSC 2.0. I see some changes to the PS desired state configuration module. Um, what's up with DSC 2.0? What's new there? Actually, I'm not very involved in this because um, my my customer base is mainly in the defense and governance space, so they use the on-prem stuff. But I'm very interested to learn these things, and I'm very committed to also move the DSC workshop to the more modern stuff that we have. So um, the next thing that I that we want to do in the DSC workshop is make it compatible with um, Azure Machine Configuration, which also requires DSC, the open source version of DSC 2.0 to to compile the configurations. So it's something for the future. Yeah, hopefully there is some time on Christmas <laughs> to, to take care of this. I wonder if you could use Automated Lab to start testing that out. Of course. <laughs> Perfect. Um, these past couple episodes, I feel like we've covered so much stuff that would, if people kind of take the time to go through this and work through the workshop, try things out, deploy some labs, um, if you go through that process, the stuff that we've we've shared with you is a huge deal and will really increase what you're capable of doing in your kind of position within your organization. Um, it kind of gets me so excited to think about if you've never worked with a CI/CD pipeline or implemented it at work, the benefits you can get and how much fun that process is the yeah. first time. Yeah. Like, you yeah. know, as scripters, we love efficiency. I yeah. tell you what, when you start seeing the efficiency of every single time you save code, 100 tests are run yeah. on it, every single, you don't have to think about it. Like that's a powerful feeling. I feel like a little wizard behind my keyboard whenever I click save, you know, commit yeah, my little yeah. change. Oh yeah. And I'm always wondering how did we release software 10 years ago without release pipelines? How did this even work? Right? So <laughs> not very well and like twice a year. Yeah, not not very well and twice a year. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> oh. It's, it's such a fun thing to be working in tech because uh, you know, you're mentioning a lot of the stuff on this podcast that didn't exist at Microsoft when you started. A lot of things, pretty much, of I think course. everything yeah. you do is didn't really exist when you started yeah. at Microsoft. The, the a large customer base was still, I think the majority in 2002 when I joined was still using Windows NT. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, IT has such a dramatic <laughs> turnaround of technology. When yeah. <laughs> It's Indeed, the money yeah. in it. There's so many resources, people working on it and stuff. Um, but yeah, it's such a fun field to experience. And it's so cool that we get to do it with you and with our awesome listeners as we all kind of go through this journey. And no matter what part we're on, there's always something very cool and challenging um, to learn and hopefully blog about, talk at conferences about, share what you learn. Yeah. Um, I recall you. We were going to mention a module that I saw you had. I believe it's a scaffolding module that you gave a talk on, Sampler. Yeah, exactly. So talking about release pipelines, about documentation, then I really want to recommend um, Sampler. It's another module scaffolding module or concept, um, but I think the the one that at least I like the most. It's also based on uh, on Plaster. Um, let's let's put it that way. It combines so many open source best practices, patterns, and existing solutions into, into one, one solution that it really saves you a lot of time. So what I like is 
Um, if you create a module using Sampler, also a module written by Gail Colas, and, and it's, it's the de facto standard in the DSC community. So every DSC resource module is released and created using Sampler. So first of all, it requires that um, you separate your functions into private and public folders. So you should hide the functions that have no public meaning. It requires that you write a test for each function. And you have to write the tests um, uh, also to reach a certain code coverage. So we, we not only want to make sure that every function does what it should do, but so that we also cover with our tests almost well, as many lines as possible in our code. So code coverage, also a very interesting concept. Then this module makes sure that the code is according to a certain standard, which is called linting, right? We make sure that the format is okay, that some certain standards are, are met. Another thing is change log, right? So how often did you do a change to your project and forgot to update the change log, right? Or maybe even, you, yeah, you did it by purpose because you thought something, uh, something better to do. Um, this module also forces you to update the change log. Of course, it cannot check what's inside the change log, what you put in, but at least it reminds you, wait a minute, there is a change, change log updated, please do this first, right? Um, what else do we do? We have an, um, an, yeah, an it, it, the publishing is integrated. So if you use um, Sampler, it comes with a build script that can run on your local machine as well as on any build system like Jenkins, GitLab, GitHub, Azure DevOps. And um, thanks to the build pipeline, um, we make sure, or we, we also enable the build pipeline to, to push, to publish the artifact on the PowerShell gallery or wherever you want to publish it, right? So um, all these concepts are not new, but they are individual concepts that you need to know and you need to put together. And this is why I like Sampler so much that it kind of throws it just in front of you um, and forces you to use them. So your, if you use Sampler, your module has a totally different quality right from the start. I'm, I'm the type of lazy that would, I would put something in place to force me to do the change log, but then I'd automate that out. So I just like add a space into the change log. Uh, yeah, I, I'm the wrong kind of lazy. There is no issue like for that, uh, but, <laughs> but it helps you. Yeah, so, so it helps you even if you're the more, the more lazy guy, because you just have to add uh, to the unreleased section um, the change that you have done, just a short comment, right? And if you create a new release, and by the way, the, the version numbers are automatically managed, and if you create a new release, then it takes your unreleased section, gives it the right version number, and puts it, puts it at the right location. So you only have to fill the change log with, with whatever you have done, but the whole release process, the whole formatting of the change log is done by, um, by scripts. So at least this kind of burden is taken away from you. To me, that's a huge yep. deal, um, particularly the fact that it reminds you to do things like a change log. Um, yeah. That is something that's so easily overlooked. Also, writing yeah. pester tests, like it's very easy to use the pre-built ones that come with the template. It's a bit harder for me, at least, to remember to like write a new test. And um, earlier, yeah. you mentioned a term called code coverage. Um, and for those who are unfamiliar, what is kind of code coverage as it relates to tests? So code coverage means if you have a function and uh, you have also written tests to that function, then you at least know what the function does. But maybe you have orphaned code that you are taking with a project for weeks or even years. Code that has no meaning anymore, but maybe a potential 
problem section for bugs, right? So if some piece of code is not used in the in yeah, in, in a normal usage of the module, then you should remove it at some point in time. And code coverage makes sure that you know exactly which lines of code are never being touched um, with your pester tests. So your pester tests should cover how people are usually using your module, right? To, to make sure the outcome is right. So um, if you have a code coverage of just, let's say, 50%, that means that 50% of your code is just there for nothing. You could remove it. Right? And we, we're all friends of clean code and making sure that the code is still easy to read and uh, yeah, easy to maintain. And uh, orphan code is something that you should remove. And it's also something that you have no idea about, right? Because um, if there is no automated way that tells you which lines of code are used and which kinds of code are not used, then how would you ever find out what paths to remove, right? So code coverage is a very effective way that tells you um, about your, your technical debt again. Yeah, that's very cool. I also like how the build script handles the versions because that's something that I forget usually is to increment it and then I go and it's like, oh, it's already there, okay. It's, yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely recommend anything that can help ease the burden of whatever task, technical task especially, because it's uh, just, for me, that overhead of switching files, going here, testing this, all that stuff really adds up and makes writing PowerShell not fun. So if you can automate yeah. all that kind of work that is not that much fun and is kind of like required to have a high quality module and project that will actually be used, um, that's a huge deal. Very cool. Yes, indeed it is, yeah. Um, yeah, and for, okay. for the version control, Gail has not invented something by his own. He has used Git version because it's already there, right? And this is yep. what I like with this module, that's, that it's it's bringing together a lot of open source projects that I would have never discovered by my own, at least not in a, in a, in a very close time. Yeah, and it's cool because it's on GitHub, so it's the type of thing where people listening today, they can start utilizing it. And if they end up having a situation where they need to dive in deeper and they see some internals and they see some things they'd like to improve once they get some kind of expertise, it's on GitHub. So those contributions, you know, things can be improved. Uh, yeah. You don't have to start off with doing that if you're just getting started with it. But as time goes on, you know, there's the opportunity for others to help improve. And uh, whether it be documentation type stuff where, oh, this term is no longer valid. we You can do all those things. And it really helps with the technical and yeah. documentation debt. So right. And we keep telling our audience, submit those PRs, <laughs> submit issues. We're trying to be part of this change in the PowerShell community where there's a whole bunch of more just communication, even if it's just asking a question saying, hey, I read through the docs. I didn't understand this. Can you let me know what I'm misremembering or will I have an yeah. issue if I try this? You know. Yeah, it, you're doing a good job. Unfortunately, too few people are still interacting with the maintainers of a repository, right? Um, asking questions, creating issues is something that should be done more often. And uh, even a PR, it, it doesn't have to be a very big PR that is rocket science, just a small thing from which you think it, it is making the world better. And even if the maintainers say, okay, it doesn't fit into our project, but thanks for the PR, you have learned at least about how the project works, right? And it's good that you're encouraging people to participate in the open source communities. Yep, because open source is a discussion first and foremost. So we got to start talking. <laughs> um, we had a guest mention that the currency of GitHub is stars and issues and pull requests. So if you appreciate what people are doing, 
Gail's put a ton of effort into to creating um, some of the projects we've talked about today and, and others as yep. well. You Automated Lab, a yep. whole bunch of people. One of the best ways to show appreciation for that is to engage with the project, is to leave yep. a star, is to At least that. be yeah. active <laughs> at the very least. Yep. Um, and it goes yep. a long way because we're all about PowerShell. So let's increase the visibility of some of these projects. And the more visible they are, the easier it is to guide people to them. Um, as they get onboarded into PowerShell and just generally make the experience of PowerShell more enjoyable and a related technologies. Yes, definitely. So I, uh, while doing some research, I stumbled across something I thought was very cool. You are, or were uh, a frequent guest blogger on the scripting blog. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, you, but it's Quite some time ago, isn't it? <laughs> it, it? It was. I, I, oh, I mean, the scripting blog is gone now, but it's just that's that's been on a lot of, especially when it's getting started. A lot of my searches on what am I trying to do led me to the scripting blog. So, yeah, anyone that's tied to that, it's that is a as a monumental achievement in my mind. I love it. Yeah, uh, it's, it's sad that these blogs are gone. It was such a such a remarkable well of information. Yeah. So they. They're keeping those active and they're trying to move more towards the documentation side for the blogs there. So you can submit into to the Microsoft Docs for that. And if it's a blog, they'll give you credit for it as well. So yeah, they're trying to power shell community know, yeah. blog. Yeah. yeah, they're trying to keep that going pretty strong just without uh, the, the scripting blog anymore. I just thought that it was does that help was, to have the branding though. Like yeah. the scripting guy. You, you see the professor with the with the vial, you know you're getting great information. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying, I, Clippy, that whole Clippy thing is a huge success. Yeah. Scripting guy could be a huge success. Yeah. Or at least give us an emoji we can use, all right? <laughs> One of the things you did write about, which looks like 2014, so I'd be shocked if you remember writing about it, but uh, managing NTFS inheritance. Which, yeah. That, that's one of those NTFS with PowerShell or something. I, I did a webcast on it once, and it just it functioned just different enough than what I'm used to that I struggled with it a lot, so... Seeing that you have like a, an entire module out there on this, I thought was pretty, pretty cool. So is that something where you don't you don't deal with the like the file share or the file system so much anymore, or is that something you still go back and visit? Yeah, uh, it's, it's it's. I must confess, I've seen an issue coming in on this module a couple of days ago, but it's more or less orphaned because the problem with open source is that at some point in time you have so many repositories that you need to take care about that it's very important to prioritize, right? And um, the NTFS module is, it's heavily used. I mean, it has hundreds of thousand downloads, um, but still there is no other maintainer than me. I think Jan Hendrik stepped in one day and um, did some some fixes and also made the, the dependency stuff much more efficient. But um, at some point in time, you need to, to, to get going and, if there is nobody from the community that is actually actively using the module, stepping in and managing the module, then yeah, it stays in a in a bad shape. Yeah, but I really liked it. So it, it I think it solved a bunch of problems for many people, and um, including myself. I used it with various various uh, yeah customer engagement and even critical situations to to fix stuff. Um, but, uh, but luckily, there is no change in NTFS anymore, right? It's a technology that is, how old is it? At least 20 years, maybe even older, right? So time. the technology doesn't change, so the module doesn't have to change, and uh, yeah. 
That's it. But I, I remember that I have written it and also written the documentation about it, yes. <laughs> yeah. So even like uh, for the SS64, if you the set-acl command, is your module listed as a reference for that one? So it's it, it's used enough that even the main documentation yeah. about the, the nice. command itself is like, you should take a look <laughs> at that. this. Okay, yeah, nice. Okay. How does it feel to... I mean, by this stage in your career, you have several projects that help people out every single day. How does it feel to kind of have done stuff with your career that helps people consistently and at such a scale? It's, it's, it's always nice to help people in whatever condition they're in, right? So it's, it's not an, I mean, it's not an overwhelming feeling. I mean, in IT, you always help people, right? So this is this is our job actually to get things going to enable other teams be more productive. So yeah, so it's just my job. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, it's nice if you see that people are actually using your stuff, valuing your stuff. Um, sometimes you get even feedback and uh, a little thank you. So yeah, at least you know that whatever you do has a purpose, and I, I... Uh, it's a good feeling. I think that a lot of people definitely solve problems and help people in IT, but I think it's a bit of a different scale when you create projects that are helping a bunch of people consistently. You know, I like, you know, fixing one person's computer is a bit different than creating a project that can help someone learn a new technology to get them a better job to change their whole life potentially. Um, Cause that's kind of the game we're in here in PowerShell. Uh, a lot of people have had their lives kind of changed in that way, at least. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I guess you kind of get used to it at a certain point. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. So I always tried to create scripts in a way and, and modules in a way that they are reusable. I, I hate creating a solution for a customer that is only working in that particular environment because it's such a such a waste of time and energy, right? So I, I always try to invest more time into a project to keep it to a, a kind of standard and and to a kind of proficiency level so that I can use it for other customers and even for the for the public community as well. Yeah. So I tried this from the very beginning. And uh, yeah, this is what actually every programmer should do, right? Try to create something that is reusable. Definitely. <clears throat> I love mentioning efficiency. Um, and that is, it's very efficient to do things that way. And it's also not selfless. Uh, like you mentioned some projects earlier, the NTFS one, you created it to solve your problem. Um, but because you did it in such a way, your efforts as a human are now able to be used by other humans. And we as humanity don't yeah. have to waste those same yeah. Yeah. Uh, time and energy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We as humanity, sounds, sounds big. I mean, I just helped a couple of IT departments. But uh, yeah. yeah, if we all act that way, then we... We should have a bit more time, more flexibility, and a better life. Definitely. Now, we're mentioning the, the blogs. Um, it's so wild to think you were writing about Automated Lab eight years ago. Now, has the project changed significantly in that time, or has it just been more like incremental changes as time goes on? It has. And so that's an interesting question. So, um, so the. Automated Lab was actually born at a conference called Geek Ready in 2012. That was a conference, an internal conference, um, where yeah, I had a talk about promoting or installing a domain um, without a single mouse click. So this was about just giving people an idea how PowerShell can help you to create an Active Directory um, with 
users and so on just for, for having a test environment. And then people approached me saying, yeah, wait a minute, creating an ID is not enough. We need to have Hyper-V machines. We need to create um, machines connecting to ActiveLink. So we need the whole, the whole environment, right? And this was the idea of actually creating automated lab. And in these days, I had a customer who was not that demanding, so I had a lot of free time and used the time to actually create the framework. And um, almost from day one, um, Per Pedersen, PFE in these days, helped me with this project. And he was thinking very differently than me. And uh, we had a lot of arguments about how things should work, how things should be designed. And this was a big learning pro process for me, because it's very good if you are creating a product or software with somebody who is behaving and thinking very differently. Because he, Per, was adding a lot of usability features into Automated Lab that I wasn't even thinking about. And then you get feedback from users saying that exactly these features have made their life easier. And then you get a bit much more humble and realizing that your, your view on things is not the, the absolute view, right? And then um, Jan Hendrik joined the team and um, he was adding a lot of things that make Automated Lab a much more richer and much more usable product. He, he has taken care about the documentation system, about the, the release pipeline in the background so that we don't have to deal with all the release processes manually that created a lot of problems. He added the mainly the cloud functionality, right? So, um, of course, there are a lot of small incremental changes, but also big waves. And the big waves always started if somebody joins the team. So this is, this is also the good thing about open source. It's not just you sitting in front of a machine and writing some software. It's a team. It's, it's very different people from different regions, from different backgrounds. And this is creating software that is also targeting different regions, different backgrounds, just a broad majority. Yeah. <clears throat> so especially the cloud features, especially the ease of use, like the recipes have been added. So it's not only incremental, also some larger steps. If you had to <clears throat> guess how many hours have been spent developing automated lab over the years and maintaining it? I would say a thousand or two thousand. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So especially at the beginning, it was a project that luckily the customer supported and also was paying for that. Um, and this gives you, of course, much more, much more bandwidth of putting time into this. But even later, it was filling a lot of evenings and nights if you are chasing a bug and want to get things going. Yeah, a couple of hundred wouldn't be enough. <laughs> Definitely more. Awesome. That's that's really quite uh, impressive. And I think that that definitely speaks to that some of the projects you've worked on are a bit more than just helping a couple people. Like these are significant undertakings that I think that f a lot of people might not feel confident that they could do. And uh, you can speak to it since you've been kind of through the process of developing and maintaining automated lab, but that's but awesome. It, it also, it, it pays back. It pays back, I think, even more than you invest because... Um, I always recommend people in PowerShell courses, if they if they ask me, what do I have to do in order to get more proficient in PowerShell? And my my hint is always, my recommendation is always, um, try to work on projects or onboard projects or invent projects that are way over your head, right? If you are just automating something that you are very familiar with, then yeah, it, it teaches you something. 
But if you, <clears throat> so for example, in automated lab, I, I needed to get familiar with how do I deploy Windows? I was not a deployment expert. So how does the base imaging, when the, the WIM files, the whole OS deployment work? No idea. How do I create unattended XML files? I didn't even know how to work with XML. So this was another learning, right? Then the whole networking stuff. No idea about um, how to create a router and, 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 and the virtual switches in Hyper-V. So this was much more than I had expected. Um, but of course, these kind of projects give you the, the biggest acceleration, the biggest boost. Just get get yeah, look out for something that is really challenging you. And uh, this project was exactly the challenge that I needed to get proficient in, yeah, in, in various technical. Um, skill sets and especially PowerShell, right? Because then you learn how to scale code, how to make it manageable, how to yeah organize it. So yeah. So that's the mindset I need to adopt. So if you're going into starting something and saying, well, I don't know enough about X or Y, it's, oh, this is a great opportunity to learn these things that I have uh, a lack of knowledge in. I, I, that's that's a fantastic approach. And I, I'm going to adopt that. I've, I've stolen <laughs> it from you. Yeah. And especially if it comes to software development, because even if you're realizing that, okay, things are way more difficult than expected, then you still can invest a little of private time and maybe one or two nights to get things fixed, right? So you, you have some kind of buffer that you can use to yeah, to, to, to rule out the complexity or even the, the, the problem that you have um, implemented in the software and writing it. I think it's a really good sign for your resume. If you can make that project, whatever it is, public. Um, it really kind of shows that you're able to do projects. For me, at least, whenever I'm looking at candidates, I like seeing things. It, it really is a testament. Oh, this person can accomplish something. And you read through their code. You see how they did it. Okay. They know about this. Oh, they were looking out for this. Blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah. I find that very interesting. Resumes, Andrew, 20 years yeah. in Microsoft. I mean, I was going to say, you know, with all the work you've done in Automated Lab, you're the expert at that. Like, you certainly have uh, increased your ability to find a new job really easily. But, I mean, if you're working at Microsoft, it's probably not that hard to do anyways. But just in general, for people listening and thinking of their own little projects, if you find your own project and it is above your head and you implement it, um, that's a great sign for a lot of prospective employers. And it goes to, like, really show that you know what you're doing, or at least you know what you've learned. Like you don't need to prove more than what you've done, but if you're learning a certain thing, show it off and, and learn from there. Because you could also get some great uh, PRs from other people in the community or issues. They say, hey, you should consider this or check out this project that solves this exact same problem you might not have heard of. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. All right. Well, are Jordan, you ready you for your three questions? I don't know if you can send them in advance. We're, we're so terrible at this. Oh, we are so terrible. I'm the one we're responsible. Are. How are you going to say we when I'm the one that does it all? Well, because I figure if I'm going to ride your coattails to success, I also have to take on some of the blame when you fail. Okay, well, I didn't fail, so yeah, uh, well, we'll find out. We will find out. All right, so we were supposed to send you these in advance, and we didn't. So you're you're going in blind. No, we did. We did well, send it I in think, advance. I think I think you did. Oh, we I did? think oh. we have covered some of them already, at least briefly. I think we did. What was the uh, what is one time something went wrong on the job and how did you handle it? Did we cover that? Mm, no, not yet. So, of course, we are all humans. We make mistakes. And um, for those of you who are a little bit familiar with Active Directory, we have a folder called the Zuswall folder, which is containing all the group policies, right? And uh, 
I managed to troubleshoot an issue with a customer, a very large customer, having about 700 domain controllers all over Europe. And I managed to delete business whole folder containing all the group policies. So I stopped their business, and it was a logistic company. So efficiency and IT is very important for them. So I, I stopped their infrastructure working in the middle of the day for at least six hours. It was my fault. Yeah, so That's I was talking really... to some colleagues then because we did, of course, we, we, we did a lot of discussions how it could have went so far. And uh, because of some technical, not so well documented things, they said, okay, it couldn't, it could have happened to everyone. But uh, it was, it was a very scary moment if you know that a couple of hundred thousand people cannot work anymore and parcels are not being delivered because you didn't know your job, right? Yeah. <laughs> Oh. So, things happen. Yeah. But what I've learned is that I wasn't fired. My head wasn't ripped off. So, it's okay to do a mistake if doing mistakes is not your primary business. The, the common theme is if you take ownership and you're part of the solution of the mistake, then you're probably okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, how would your coworkers react to that? Were they kind or were they freaking out? They're like, what happened here? No, very, very kind. So, the the, the atmosphere at Microsoft is not that you're trying to blame people for something. So it's more a collaborative team effort to, yeah, to, to solve the stuff, right? And yeah. Uh, yeah, working as a team is the only way how you can how you can solve issues like these. So I, I like to call it Sysfall built-in DFS just to watch sysadmins try to correct me. He's like, no, you shouldn't use Sysfall for this just every time. They can't let it go. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, with your know knowledge what you. now, what's one tip you would give your younger self when you're first starting in IT? Push, your push, push yourself more to the limits, right? So at the first, I tried to, as I said, select projects that you have even no idea how to start with. Um, projects that are, are, are touching technologies that you haven't heard about, right? And at the beginning, I was a little bit too reluctant, too shy, too lazy, too whatever. And um, yeah, over time, you realize that if you if you want to to learn something, and so I'm I'm somebody I'm not learning by reading books, I'm not learning by watching videos. I need to do something. I need to experience how things work. And uh, this is why I always try to engage in software projects that are, yeah, of course, beneficial for not just one customer, but for for a broader majority and um, better touching things that I haven't heard before, right? So push yourself to the limits as early as possible, especially if you're young, because then you still have the energy and the passion and everything's easier. And if you do put in that effort to reach whatever level of proficiency you're looking for, you can relax at a certain point. It, you know, you'll, you'll be able to have refined your ability to learn new skills. You'll have a great kind of working skill set that you've found confidence in over the years at different jobs and whatnot. Um, yeah, so true. All right. So the last question, this one's just a bit of a fun one. What are three of your favorite or notable modules that you use? Mm, sampler. Sampler great number one. one. Um, the DSE workshop because it's a completely new way of managing IT and the DSC workshop. So it's not my project, actually. It's it's mainly taken what Gail has done to the next level. 
Um, and um, what I always li also like is uh, some of the modules from Patrick Meinecke. He goes under the pseudonym Simulating Science. He has written the um, Implied Reflection module. So Implied Reflection is a PowerShell module that if enabled, gives you access to private properties, to yeah, to, to internal things that are hidden in the in the in the .NET world, um, and I like his approach. His, he, these modules are not so very important for your day to day life, but they have a very specific scientific approach to things. Um, so it's I like them very much to to play and get a better idea how things work in the background. It's a seemingly scientific approach, I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm happy to announce you're in for a real treat. You're one of 28 people that has gotten a live sit-in to watch Andrew shill for uh shill for likes. This is uh he's a he's a true expert. I want you to, to buckle up because it's about to get great in here. <laughs> yeah, this is real professionalism on display here. Um, <laughs> thank you everybody yeah. for listening. This is the shill of the ride. Um <laughs> Thanks for listening and sending us so much great feedback lately. Uh, we got a couple of messages last week that really touched our hearts and really appreciate everyone who sent us uh, a little bit about themselves and kind of what they enjoy about the podcast um, and some ideas for future shows. Definitely appreciate that. Uh, if you enjoyed the show today and you listened this long, first of all, what's up? We're friends because we clearly like the same things. Um, awesome. I feel like I've been talking to you all for, for a while here. Um, please like, comment, and subscribe on YouTube if you're watching there, if you're listening on a podcast player go ahead and give us a five-star review. Um, if you want to say something to us, you can email us too, powershell at pdq.com. And uh, you can even tweet us. Jordan, where can they tweet us? I, I Actually, good thing you wrote this down, at powershellpod. Oh, good, good one, man. Oh, you can let us know what's going on. Yes. <laughs> um, is there anything else I need to tell our lovely audience? No, as, as usual, you uh, true professionalism. Yeah, yeah, thanks for having me. It was a very nice discussion. Also, I learned something. Yep. It's very good. This is and I've I've learned that this podcast series is awesome. So it will be something that I will be listening when driving my car. Awesome. Right, well, thank you very much for that. Uh, Thanks for we, joining us. Too. Yeah, this was a fantastic conversation. This was fantastic. Likewise. I think that our thank audience is going to really appreciate what we cover here. So, Thanks for listening to the PowerShell Podcast with your hosts, Jordan Hammond and Andrew Plough. They are cunning capable, agile, flexible. They know what they're doing. The PowerShell Podcast is a production of PDQ.com.